0: All right. I'd like to start this morning with 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16 and in verse 13. At the end of this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. I'm gonna read it one more time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. The theme for this weekend is training for the struggle, and when I think about training for the struggle, training to get better, to be stronger, to be able to make it through challenges and trials and tribulations, this verse I think really speaks to me about what we need to do. We need to watch out, knowing that these things are going to come, and then when these things come upon us, we need to stand fast. And that's really what I'm gonna be talking about today. I'm gonna be talking about this idea of standing fast. I called it holding the line. Because when these things are thrown at us, we need to realize that we don't have an option. Retreating, going backwards, is not an option. Giving up the ground that we have already attained is not an option. Standing fast means that you are not going to move, and it also means that you are committing to not being moved. You are going to hold the ground that you have already attained. And so this lesson is really an introduction. We're going to be talking about a couple of different topics today. Uh, After my class, we're going to have a couple of minutes of break, and then we're going to break out, and uh, the women are going to go back to a class, and the men are going to stay here for a class. We're going to have a lunch break, and we're going to have another breakout session, a session for the women and a session for the men, and then we're all going to come back again together for one final class. And I'll touch on some of those topics, but, but really this is going to serve as an introduction. And I, and I want you just to get to thinking about that idea of standing fast. And why, why is standing fast so important? Well, we all want to grow and to get better. I'm going to use some words interchangeably today. I'm going to talk about progress. I'm going to talk about growth. I'm going to talk about maturity. But what I'm talking about is getting better. We all want to get better. In multiple facets of our lives, both physically and spiritually, we want to get better. But growth and progress and maturity doesn't happen in a straight line. There are gonna be times that we plateau. There are gonna be times that different things this world's gonna throw at us is going to slow us down and halt that progress, and it's in those moments that we have a decision to make. And that decision is either to retreat and to fall back and to give up what we've already attained or to stand fast. So that's what I'm gonna talk about for a little bit this morning. And I wanna start with two stories. Um, I, I, like, I like history, I like military history, and so I'm gonna start off with two stories and we're gonna talk about retreating a little bit. The first story is from the Battle of Thermopylae. So we're going way back in time. We're going back in time uh, to about 480 BC when the Persians are the dominant world power. And the Persian army, we've been studying a little bit about the Persians on Wednesday night. Uh, This is under the reign of King Xerxes. But the Persians are this dominant world power and they are looking to conquer Greece. Now, now Greece is a little bit different. You know, at this time, Greece is this collection of what they refer to as city-states. So it's not this this big unified nation like maybe we think of as the United States or, or Great Britain. This is a collection of smaller cities that unified when it was convenient for them and separated when it was also convenient for them. And so Persia saw an opportunity. And several years prior to this, they had made a small foray into trying to conquer Greece. And they'd pulled back a little bit. And now they're renewing their efforts. They are going to conquer Greece and they're going to conquer all of these individual city-states. Thermopylae is this area that came to a very, very narrow pass. So it's right there by the ocean, uh, it doesn't look like that anymore. This is a kind of a stylized drawing, but it's right there by the ocean. And it's this very narrow area. So some of these Greek city-states hear that the Persians are coming again. They're sending a navy and they're sending an army to conquer Greece again. And so quickly, several groups of these Greek city-states scramble some forces and they send them to try to scout out and see what's going on. Um, now, this story ha- has, been, has been told in lots of different ways. Uh, it's been embellished by a lot. There was a movie made some years ago called 300 um, that was talking about these Spartan warriors. But the point that I want us to get from, from this, this real battle that happened in military history, primarily made up of Spartans, got to Thermopylae, they realized very quickly that they were outmatched. You, you can read a lot of different accounts um, and there were some accounts that were written at that time by an individual named uh, Herodotus, and he estimated at that time there were a couple of thousand Greek and, uh, Greek Greek forces. So we're talking like four or five thousand, and these were made up of what they could kind of quickly cobble together. The Persian army numbered well over one hundred thousand, so we had five thousand individuals up against over one hundred thousand. Very quickly the Greeks realized they were not going to win this battle. And this was their moment of decision making. Were they going to turn around and flee and try to save their own lives and give up whatever they had already attained? Or were they going to make a stand? And this battle is so famous because they made a stand. They made a stand right there at Thermopylae. It was called the Hot Gates. It was this narrow pass, and they used this narrow pass to their advantage. And what the Spartans did, and why the Spartans have gained so much notoriety, is that they actually sent back a great number of their forces. So after a day of battle, when they realized that they were not going to be able to win, they were far, far outmatched, they sent back a great number of these Greek forces. And their job was to go back and to try to rally these Greek city-states together, to let them know what they were going to be up against. The Spartans very quickly realized they were probably going to give their lives And this is where the the embellished history comes in, that it got down on the final day of fighting to just a few hundred Spartans. That's where the number 300 comes from. It was estimated that about 300 Spartans stayed behind and they were going to hold this ground for as long as they possibly could. What's remarkable is that history records the number of casualties on the Persian side to be between 20 and 25,000. So over several days of fighting, a much, much smaller force was able to cause the enemy to lose about 20 to 25% of their overall army. And they allowed the rest of their forces to escape back to freedom, to get back, and to rally the Greek city-states together. And as history records it, you know, the the, the Persian army was able to move on, but then they were defeated. This stand, this holding, holding of the line right here eventually led to victory for Greece because these individuals, even knowing that they might give their life, they committed to holding the line and standing right there. Well, let's look at a, let's look at a different story, a little bit different. I don't know how well you can see this is a painting that somebody did, but uh, this was the Battle of San Jacinto. Now, this is forward in time. This is during the Texas Revolution. Um, so, this is just after the Alamo, So if you're thinking about uh, your U.S. history, this is just after the Alamo. The Texian forces have been decimated. They're on the run. You You can read a couple different things, but it sounds like at this time there was only a few hundred of them, maybe 600 to 700 Texan forces that are on the run from the Mexican army in Santa Ana. Santa Ana had several thousand troops that were already pushed into Texas and more at his disposal. So he sends a force to chase the Texan army. About 1,500 to 1,700 individuals are chasing the Texan army. They get tired and they decide they're gonna make camp in this open field in broad daylight. They're so confident that they've got the Texan army on the run that they make camp in broad daylight in the middle of a field and Santa Ana allows all of his forces to take a nap in the middle of the day in an open field. Think about that level of confidence or arrogance for just a minute. You think that you have got everything figured out, you are so confident that you've got this other force on the run, that you are gonna take a nap in the middle of a war, in the middle of the day, in an open field. Well, the Texan army realized an opportunity, and they charged and they attacked the much larger Mexican army at this area, and it was a complete rout. Some of the things I read said the battle lasted about 15 minutes. And within the space of a few minutes, the Mexican army had turned and fled. And the Texan army, again, numbering about 600 to 700, captured as many as 900 individuals, including Santa Ana. Think about that for a second. They captured more people than they had. It it, it was remarkable. They were completely caught off guard. And before they knew it, they were retreating. And when they were retreating, the vast majority of their force was captured, including their commander, Santa Ana. Well, Santa Ana was forced, because he was captured, to surrender, despite the fact that he had thousands of more troops just a little bit further away from their position, and thousands of more troops down in Mexico that could have come back for reinforcements. So this arrogance, this overconfidence, and this immediate retreat led to the end of the Texas Revolution and a loss for the Mexican army. Now, now these are just two examples. I just wanted to throw these out there. I always think military history is, is, is interesting But can you see there how in the heat of battle, in the face of trial, the decision to hold the line or the decision to retreat can have huge ramifications, not just in that moment. They can have ramifications and they can change the entire course of a war. They can literally be the difference between winning a war and losing the war. And that's really what I want us to think about as it relates to our spiritual lives, As I mentioned earlier, we all want to grow. We all want to get better. We all want to mature. We want to get better when it comes to spiritual things. But I want us to maybe rethink progress a little bit. And let's really drill down and think about progress. You know, God designed us to grow. There's no doubt about that. God wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to get better. Uh, Some familiar passages to you in, in Hebrews. Let's look over there real quick, Hebrews chapter five. This is the writer really scolding these individuals for not growing. He says in Hebrews chapter five and in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, he is a babe. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's how God designed us. God designed us to use reason and to use exercise to discern and grow and to transition from being a babe to being one who is of full age, to being one who just sustains themselves on the milk of the word, to moving on to that solid meat of the word, the more important, the more difficult topics. Another passage that I thought about is there in 2 Peter. This is a positive and encouraging uh, set of verses. But it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. Look at that clear contrast there. There is one individual who is growing. There is one individual who is always seeking to abound, to add faith, knowledge, self-control, perseverance. They're trying to add all of these good virtues to themselves. That's an individual who is designed to abound and the one who does not have that attitude is described in verse nine as short-sighted and blind. That's not how we want to be described. We don't want to be short-sighted and blind. God designed us to grow. So what what I want to be very, very clear about today is that this is not giving ourselves an excuse. Uh, Frequently, you've heard maybe a teacher, or, or I know I've even said this in some classes, but when you think about yourself one year ago today, when you think about yourself, let's see, September 26th, 2019, Are you a better Christian today than you were September 26, 2019? Are you a better Christian today than you were September 26, 2018? Are you progressing? Are you growing? Are you getting better? What we're talking about today is if you look in the mirror and you realize, you know what? I I, I don't think I'm better. I think I've just been plateauing. Maybe even scarier if you think, man, This time last year, I was doing a lot of things that I'm not doing right now. If you're not growing and you're not progressing, what we're talking about today is not designed to be an excuse. This is not going to give us an out. This is not gonna give us a crutch for not getting better. But I do want us to realize that we do not grow in a straight line forever. There is nothing in this world that grows in a straight line. You think about how even our bodies grow. We go through growth spurts. Uh, I remember when I was when I was younger, there was a period of time, I think maybe like in fifth grade, I went through this big growth spurt and all of a sudden I was the tallest kid in class and then I didn't grow again for like five more years. <laughs> you know, you just plateau and then you grow a little bit more. That's how our bodies grow. I deal a lot with, with the markets and with uh, with stocks. Stocks do not go straight up. They, they'll go up for a little bit and then flat and then go back down and then go up a little bit and then go way down and then come back up. You know, if you look at a stock chart, it's just up, down, up, down. And you hope that when you look at a name over a long period of time, the trend is up and to the right. But it's a bumpy ride to get there. This, this year's been a very bumpy ride. Nothing in our life just goes straight up. But yet we sometimes set these expectations on ourselves. And our growth can be halted. There, there are lots of things that can that can halt that progress. One thing that I think is maybe maybe especially impactful is that stage of life right after college. Some of you are, are in that stage of life, some of you are coming up to that stage of life, but our entire lives when we're young it is all built around advancing to the next step. That's what school is designed for. For a period of 18 years, there is always something that comes next. Fifth grade follows fourth grade. High school follows middle school. When you get done with high school, a lot of individuals will go on to some form of higher education, or they'll go into an apprenticeship, or they'll go into a job. There's always something that comes next. And then, when you finish college, when you finish that apprenticeship, when you start that job, I think it's very natural for a lot of young people to say, well, what comes next? You know, and there are other things, you know, maybe, maybe it's marriage, or maybe it's kids, But there is this period of time that I think I have seen, not only in my own life, but in a lot of other individuals' lives, where in your early to mid-20s, there are a lot of young people that really grapple with, "Okay, okay, what next? Is it just work for 35 years and then retire? We have had all these milestones laid out for us, and then all of a sudden, there are no more milestones, and now it's up to us. Now it's up to us to say, okay, I'm going to dictate what's going to be next for me. I'm going to dictate the things that I want to learn more about. I'm going to dictate the things that I want to get better in. We've had a lot of help as young people showing us that path of progress. But after college, when we get married and we start having kids and we start forming our own families, it's up to us to dictate our own progress. We're we're on our own. And that can be a turbulent time for a lot of young individuals as they wrestle and grapple. I just feel personally like I've known several individuals over the past year or two that have really struggled with their faith at this specific point in time. And I think it's because it's it's a natural time of life to think, all right, what next? And if we feel like we aren't growing, if we feel like we aren't making progress, we can get discouraged. Unforeseen challenges, sicknesses. Again, when you get out on your own, when you're in college, living by yourself, maybe for the first time, when you're after college and you're married and a lot of responsibilities are piled on you as a husband, as a wife. Even when you're not married, when you're just living on your own, dealing with life, there are so many unforeseen challenges. It can be sickness, it could be job change, it could be just being a bad being in a bad job. It could be COVID. What an unexpected challenge. Those things can halt our progress. And if we had zeal and fervor and we were growing and progressing and we were feeling really good about ourselves, there are a lot of things this life can throw at us to halt that progress. Sometimes it's just feeling stuck. Have you ever just felt stuck? Maybe you're stuck in a job. Maybe you're stuck in a relationship. And you just feel like, man, we're, we're, just, we're not going anywhere. When I look back at this relationship, when I look back at this job, when I look back at whatever fill in the blank is, and I go back a year or two years, I don't feel like anything has changed. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've got so many things going on. I I, I can definitely attest to this. When, When kids come along, you feel like you're pulled in a thousand different directions, and you've got work, and you've got family, and you've got church, and you've got any semblance of a hobby that you're trying to scrap together, and you feel like, I can't make progress in any direction because I've got 14 of them. There are so many different things that can try to halt our progress. But what I want us to realize is that those are all things that Satan can use as an opportunity to discourage us. Uh, there, there's a book that I read several years ago, and I'd actually forgotten about it, uh, but there was a book written by a guy named Seth Godin. And it's a business and a marketing book, but he talked about a term called the dip. And, and I'd actually forgotten about it, and then a, a week ago I was listening to a podcast, and this guy was talking about the dip, and I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's it, I need to bring that in. This, this is the dip, so on the bottom, you've got effort, and on the top axis, you've got results. So think back in your own life. When you start something, you're putting a lot of effort into it, and initially, you start to see some really good results. So that's what we're looking at right there. You see how the, see how the chart kind of grows up very sharply. We're putting effort into something new. Um, th- think about maybe it's a diet. All right, I'm going to get healthy. I'm really gonna change my diets. We put a lot of effort in, we go to the grocery store, we buy healthy food, we don't buy the, the bad stuff, we don't eat out. We're putting effort into this diet and we get immediate results. That first week, lose a couple of pounds. You're like, this is great. I am progressing, I am growing, I am getting better. And then what happens after a week or two? Plateau. All of a sudden, you're not getting better. You're not losing any more weight. And then what's really discouraging? is that after a little bit more time, and and granted, we're still putting effort in. Effort is still going into into this endeavor. Not only do our results plateau, sometimes our results fall back. Now, we might still be getting something, but let's just say, hey, we were losing two or three pounds a week. Then, all of a sudden, maybe we're not losing any weight. Then, maybe there's a week that comes along and we gain weight. That's the dip, that's what this author referred to as the dip. And it's worse than a plateau. We actually feel like we've, 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 we've gone back a little bit. We have given up a little bit of ground. And, and granted, we're still putting effort in. And, and this can be anything. Think about I- any endeavor. Maybe you're trying to learn, learn a new skill. When you're first starting to learn a new skill, maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a sport, maybe it's a hobby, whatever it is. You put a lot of effort in. You're really excited. You are growing at an incredibly fast pace. And that growth slows down and it slows down, and then we get to a certain point where we feel like, maybe maybe I'm actually getting a little bit worse at this. Not only am I not growing, I'm going backwards. That's the point in time, and I think this chart really illustrates it, that's the point in time that I'm talking about. When we find ourselves in the dip, we have a really big decision to make, and a lot of individuals, when they get to this point in time, they say, all right, I'm out. It's not working out for me. I'm putting in a ton of time and effort. I'm not getting the results. I'm on to something new. So, you know, they they hop from one diet to the next, and they get stuck in the cycle. They hop from one hobby to the next. They hop from one skill to the next. And every time they get to the dip, they stop, and they give up, and they go to something else. And, And what this author says, and I think it holds a lot of truth, is that if you can push through this period of time, that's when the real growth occurs. Is that when you are challenged, when you are slowed down, when you are halted, when you find yourself in this this make or break moment, that's when you have to keep putting effort into it. It's the exact wrong time to withdraw your effort and go on to something else, because you know what you're gonna do is you're gonna start the cycle all over again. You're gonna start the cycle of getting some results and trying something new, and then eventually you're gonna come to another dip. And I think we find this in our relationships. We find this in our hobbies, we find this maybe in our job, and I think especially we can find this in our spiritual growth. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you can probably think back on these times. You might even be in this time right now. And if you're not, I think being aware that it can happen is valuable. Because when we start to feel this way, we've got an option, we can get discouraged, We can get sidetracked or we can push through. And that's what we are trying to talk about this weekend is pushing through, training for the struggle, training so that when we find ourselves in this dip, we know that progress is just on the other side. Growth is just on the other side. We have got to hold our ground and we have got to go back to work and continue putting effort in because if it is something that is regarding our spiritual growth and our spiritual lives, it is absolutely worth the effort. And that's what we wanna talk about today, is pushing through this dip. Because when we feel like we aren't, it is so easy to get discouraged. I think about the the tools that Satan uses to get us. He, He wants to distract us. So often, isn't that how he starts? He just wants to take our attention away. He doesn't come at us with this big full frontal assault trying to say, hey, listen, I know you're faithful. I want to completely destroy you right now. He just wants to distract you. He just wants to get a little bit of your attention. And if he can distract you, he knows that he can discourage you. If he can get your attention away from God and onto the things of this world, he can discourage you. And if you get a little bit discouraged, guess what happens? Maybe now some doubt creeps in. Maybe now you start to wonder, you know, is is this even worth it? I'm going to church, but I just don't feel any more encouraged. You know, I'm going to church. I've got to, I've got to wear a mask. Um, you know, I, I can't. I can't be with my. I can't be with my brethren the way that I used to. We don't have as many opportunities. You know, all of a sudden this doubt starts to creep in. We start to wonder, like, you know, is is it even worth it? Is this even doing anything for me? Maybe there's something new out there. Maybe there's something different that's going to that's going to be better for me. If he can distract you, if he can discourage you. If he can introduce doubt, he can destroy you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to use these tools that are at his disposal to get you on his side. And it it, it very rarely comes with that full frontal assault. It's small, and he works his way in, and he works his way in, and he works his way in, and then he's got you. As I was going through this lesson, I was just thinking of individuals. I was thinking of young men that are friends of mine, and I see this pattern play out in their lives where they, they get distracted. And then all of a sudden, they, they get discouraged and I'm, and I'm talking to them, I'm thinking about this guy and I'm talking to him and he's just telling me, he's like, oh, I feel like I'm in a rut with my marriage, I just don't feel like I'm growing spiritually, I don't like my job, you know, I feel like I've been doing the same thing for years now. I tried for a promotion, I didn't get a promotion and it just spreads. And the way we feel about our job and the way we feel about our marriage all bleeds over to the way we feel about God. And when we get discouraged and when we feel like we're in this rut, we're in this make or break moment. We're in that dip. And instead of being able to push through, we're destroyed. We're pulled away from the faith. We're convinced by Satan that it's not worth it. It's not worth any more effort because you're not gonna get the results you want. And that can't happen. That is not an option we have to combat this discouragement with joy. That is God's gift to us to combat discouragement. Look with me just a moment in Romans chapter 12. I think it's interesting how joy is framed here in Romans chapter 12. Look at this, and this is in this this section again that's describing these Christian virtues these ways that a Christian should look and talk and act. But look at this in in Romans chapter 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, steadfast in prayer. I just think it's interesting that these three things are grouped together. God doesn't do anything haphazardly. When he groups words together, when he puts things together, there's something there for us to take. And I think it's interesting that we can rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation at the same time. And might I suggest to you that the way that we are patient in tribulation is because we can rejoice in hope. Maybe some of the worst advice when you're struggling with something, when you're discouraged, is when somebody says, well just don't be, just don't be discouraged. Just feel better, are you sad? Well then be happy. Isn't that impossible advice to take? Like, well listen, I can't be happy, that's why I'm so sad. I'm sad, I'm discouraged, I'm bummed out, I've got all these things that are going with me. What do I have to be happy about? I think the answer is given to us here. How can we rejoice? How can we be patient in tribulation? When we're in the middle of the dip, when we've got coronavirus and we've got job loss and we've got sickness and we've got all these things going on, how in the world can we possibly rejoice? What is there to be joyous about? Well, the answer given to us here is to rejoice in hope we have a hope that is beyond this life. When we talk about the final victory, we're not talking about finally losing 20 pounds. The final victory for us is so much bigger and better than anything that this world has to offer. When we are talking about rejoicing in hope, we are talking about the hope that Christians alone have of an eternity in heaven. And that overshadows anything that Satan can try to use to distract, distract, discourage, or provide us with doubt. That hope of an eternity in heaven by itself is cause for joy and is cause for rejoicing. We serve a God of joy and hope. Just uh, flip maybe just a page or two over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, he's talking to the Gentiles about glorifying God because they now have this hope. A hope and a joy that was once reserved for God's chosen people is now made available to all. And he concludes this section in Romans chapter 15 and in verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God that we serve is not one of discouragement and doubt and destruction. We serve the God of joy and of hope. He has made that eternal home possible to all of us and that is the reason that even in the midst of all of this, we can joy. Think about Philippians chapter four, rejoice what? Rejoice in this life? Rejoice in college football? Rejoice in a political party? Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Just on its face, this world does not give us a lot of things to rejoice in. There are some beautiful aspects of this world. There's also a lot of things that are pretty discouraging. And our news does a great job of presenting us with that on a regular basis. A lot of things to be discouraged about. That's not the kind of God that we serve. We serve the God of joy and the God of hope. And we need to remember that. And that's something that we can use to combat this, this doubt and this destruction that Satan tries to bring upon us. The last point that I I want to talk about for for a few minutes here um, is really going to serve to introduce some of the other sections that we're talking about. I've been talking to you this morning about rethinking progress, rethinking growth. We need to understand that that dip may come, that halting or slowing of our progress may come, and we need to be prepared for it. And again, if you're going through that right now, hopefully this will be encouraging to you. Hopefully some of the sessions today can give you practical takeaways for things that you can put into your life right now to push through that dip and get out. And what I'm uh, very hopeful for is that if you have not encountered this, maybe you never will, but if you do, we can give you some practical things to think about so that you can put these into your life right now so that you can push through that period of time. But what I want us to realize is that progress is not always doing something new. We mentioned politics just a minute ago. Every four years, we get a whole slew of individuals coming around from both parties that say, hey, I've got something new. I've got something new, and it is going to make your life so much better. And it's not new. It's a, it's a rehash of something else, it's a different variation of something else, it's something else that's been tried before, but it's always something new and something shiny and it's just gonna be the best thing ever and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fix your life and I'm gonna make your life so much better if you vote for me. We are, we are allured by something new. Um, you know, I, it doesn't matter how long I've been playing golf. So every, every season, new golf clubs come out and I look at it and think, oh man, that's, Pretty nice golf club. It looks a lot like the ones that I've already got, but man, it's new. It's really nice. I can't distinguish that, that 2021 model car from a 2017 model car, but I know it's new. And when it's new, ooh, man, it's, it's, ah, new is nice. New is nice. We like new. New is shiny. We like shiny things, you know? All of a sudden, you've had that really nice new car for like six months, and you're like, ah, yeah, just driving around my old beater over here. You know, it's not new anymore, so it's not near as cool. It's the exact same car. (laughs) We like new, but progress is not always doing something new. Just replacing something old with something new doesn't mean we're actually growing. It doesn't mean that it's actually better. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I put up here Acts chapter 17. Turn over there with me if you would to Acts chapter 17. If you remember, this is Paul, and he's addressing those Athenians These Athenian philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, he's addressing these individuals at the Areopagus. And it's interesting just the way that the setup for this sermon occurs. And I like the way that it describes the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 and in verse 21. Uh, It mentions earlier in verse 18, they hear some of these things that Paul is saying and they're like, oh, hey, that's new. You're You're talking about something new. We love to talk, we love to talk about new things. But look at the way it describes them, verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. That, that was not a compliment. Let me fill you in on that. <laughs> that is not a compliment of them. All they did was sit around and talk about new things. Uh, the, the, these, you know, sometimes we hold up these, these philosophers for uh, you know, the great sayings and the great things that they, that they talked about. This is is not a compliment of the Epicureans and the Stoics. It said all they did was sit around and talk about some new thing. And anytime somebody wanted to come in, oh, great, you're talking about something new? Yeah, we'd love to talk about new things. But their religion was vain and empty because what did they do with all these new things? Well, we know that the entire basis for Paul's sermon is he says, hey, listen, you guys are really, really religious. Wow, look how religious you are. You've got all of these idols, You're so religious that you've got an idol over here to a God that is unknown to you. How vain and empty is that religion? That you are so interested in new things that you've got to have an idol to something that you may not even know about because you might know about it one day. And Paul uses that as the perfect launching point to say, let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. I would love to tell you all about the God that you don't know about because the God that you don't know about, he's not an idol He doesn't need to dwell in some temple made with your hands. He's greater than all of that. But we see that in our our lives today. We love things that are new. And it's so easy to think that something new is going to be the answer. When we look at individuals that are discouraged, that are struggling, what what is the world's solution? Hey, why don't you go buy something? Why don't you try to fill this hole inside of you with some stuff? You know what you really need? You know what would make you feel better? A new car. Oh, yeah, man, a new car would make you feel great. You know, you don't, you don't like your spouse? Well, you know what you need to do? You need a new one. Just get a new spouse. That's, that's the answer. It's not work harder. It's not look at yourself. You just need a new one. Is your job bad? Oh, get a new one. Gotta get a new one. Uh, let me say, th- there are some times that we need to change things out. But the answer is not always something new. And so often I think what is so discouraging to people is that they continue to put new things in. They buy more and more and more stuff and they're not happy. They change and change and change and change and change but they're not happy. They have replaced everything in their life with something that is new and they have not filled that gaping hole inside of them because something new is not progress. You're just starting the dip all over again. (laughs) You got to the dip, you're unhappy, say, all right, I'm out of here, this isn't working. You started new, you found some progress at the beginning, and then you're right back where you were again, on that hamster wheel. Something new is not always progress. Very similar, something that is bigger and better is also not always progress. Uh, Go back with me, if you would, to Jeremiah. When we go back to Jeremiah chapter six, This is a a condemnation by the prophet Jeremiah of the people. Just a few verses earlier, he is is lamenting that everybody from the prophet to the priest has abandoned God. This is a call for, for the people to go back to a life of righteousness and to go back into a relationship with God. And he says in Jeremiah chapter six and in verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, then you will find rest for your souls. And the sad conclusion to that verse is, but they said, we will not walk in it. He is imploring them here. He said, listen, if you would just realize, go back to what you had. If you think about the history of the children of Israel, they wanted bigger and better. They were never satisfied with what God had to give them. And God had given them everything. God gave them the promised land. God gave them the prophets. God gave them the judges. God gave them himself. He said all the way back in Exodus, you will be my people and I will be your God. And that should have been enough for them. But they wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to have a king. They wanted to have idols. They wanted to do all the things that these other nations did, and they left God. They wanted to go on to bigger and better. They wanted something new. And God said, that's not the answer. You need to go back to the old paths. Go back to the truth. We're going to have a lesson after this It's talking about core regimen. That's talking about consistent, simple things that we can do on a regular basis to try and get better and to try and grow. And these are the kind of things that are gonna help us get through the dip. These are also the kind of things that are gonna set us up for future growth. There are some times that we need to just get back to what we were doing, and we lose sight of that. We think that something bigger, something better, something shinier, something new is gonna be the answer to all of our problems. When we look out over the religious landscape, there are lots of individuals, there are lots of churches, there are lots of groups that have fallen prey to this idea of new and bigger and better, and that's progress. You know, the old way we did things, man, just sitting around and, and, and singing with our voices, that's just, that's just not going to bring people in the door. We need to make our worship more exciting. We need, to, we need to really, really think about how we're doing things because I just don't think that people are going to be attracted to that. We need to add things to our worship to make it, to make it better and more appealing. We need to add activities we need to add services, we need to add gyms, we need to add food, we need to add entertainment. We need to do things differently, we need to do things bigger and better. I had a conversation uh, just, just a month or two ago with the, uh, the lead minister uh, for, for foreign evangelism. And I was asking him some questions because they had made a, a, very, a very, very big change in the way that they handle their, their foreign evangelism. The pattern that we find in the scriptures is you have churches that support individuals. That's the pattern that we have. Paul, Barnabas, they received support from individual, from individual churches to go and spread the word. And this church had made a change. And what they've decided to do is they've decided to give money to an organization. They're gonna give a million dollars to two organizations. And these organizations are then going to spread the money out and they're going to plant churches all over the world. And, and I was talking to this guy, I said, you know, I'm interested, why did, you, why did you change? I said, well, it just wasn't happening fast enough. He said, you know, we want to plant thousands of churches. And if we're just supporting individuals, that, that's not going to happen fast enough. But if we send our money to this organization, they can pool it with money from other churches. And then they can, we can really just scale this thing up. Uh, what I thought was interesting was that this organization, when you look at their website, they weren't teaching the truth that's found in God's word. They weren't teaching that baptism is essential for salvation. And I asked, I said, you know, is, is, that, a, is that a problem for you? And he said, well, you know, that's not how we teach it here. You know, so I, so I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but, you know, we need to grow, and we're not growing fast enough, and growth is more important. So many churches today have fallen prey to new, to bigger, to better, and they have lost sight of the old paths. They've lost sight of the truth, the way that God gave us to do things. And really, I think they've lost faith in God. When they say that things aren't happening fast enough, they say God is not working fast enough, so I need to come up with a better way to grow faster, to grow better. That's not what God calls us to do. There is value in consistency, we can set ourselves up for greater future growth when we practice regular, consistent habits. Think for just a moment with me about Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I believe that some of the, some of the other classes are going to delve a little bit deeper into Ephesians chapter 6. I just want to think about this idea that's brought out in the first couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Go down to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore. You see this theme? Stand, 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 withstand. When we think about putting on the armor of God, We are equipping ourselves with the tools that God has given us. But God has given us all these tools to withstand. God has given us offensive tools. But God also gives us a lot of defensive tools. And sometimes I don't think we realize that we have to play defense just like we have to play offense. You know, If you've got a team who is just fantastic at offense and they are scoring points left and right but they don't play defense, Guess what? Every single game is going to be a shootout, and they're going to end up losing at some point. They might be able to score and score and score, but if you can't stop anybody, you're going to get scored on. We have to be able to play defense and play offense. There are going to be times in our life when we have to use the tools that God has given us to stand, to stand fast, to not move and to not be moved. And I think we need to recognize that God has given us tools and when we use those tools consistently, we can stand and we can withstand. Because I think we need to understand that losing what we have, retreating, going back, can prove a disastrous mistake that we may never recover from. Look with me, me, if you would, in Job. Let's look at Job chapter two. I think Job faced this very, make or break moment. In Job chapter one, we read about what happens to Job, this righteous man that was held up by God himself as an example of faithfulness and righteousness. And he was a target for Satan. Uh, That that should be sobering for us right away. When we are righteous and when we are faithful, we are on Satan's radar. And again, go back to that, distract, distract, discourage, doubt, destroy. When we are on his radar, he wants to find ways to pull us down. And Satan wanted to find a way to pull Job down. He looked at Job and he said, well, the only only reason that Job is faithful to you is look at all the stuff he's got. He's got great stuff. He's rich, he's got a great family, he's got lots of possessions. You take all that stuff away, man, he's nothing. And God said, okay. Again, that's, that's, that's pretty sobering. God said, okay, you can take his stuff away, but you can't hurt him. And so Satan takes it all away, takes his family away from him, takes his stuff away from him, his possessions, his flocks, they're all taken away. And Job doesn't waver. And Satan comes back and he's like, well, you know, he's still got his health. You can take everything that a man has, but he is selfish. He only cares about himself. Unless you touch him He's not gonna gonna doubt, and God said, okay. You can impact him, but you can't take his life. And when he did, he brought Job as low as I can imagine anybody being brought. I cannot imagine having these things done to me. But look in Job chapter two. After all this has happened to him, the person that should have been his rock, his support, the person that is gonna be with him through anything, his wife, comes to him and says in verse nine, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? I can imagine that being the final straw. I could handle all these other things being done to me, but the person who is supposed to be by my side says, that's it, go ahead and give up, go ahead and retreat. I mean, what Job is going through, this is more than a dip. This is the make or break moment. And the person that is closest to you has just said, go ahead and give up. Go ahead and retreat. It's all over. And Job had a decision to make in that moment. Was he going to withstand? Was he going to stand fast? Was he going to stand firm? Or was he just going to give it all up? And we know the decision that he made. In verse 10, he said, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What a remarkable character. As we read throughout the middle part of Job, he's continually bombarded time and time and time again by by his friends, by individuals that he thought were on his side. He experienced highs and lows and everything in between but he remained faithful to God. And we know how the story ends. When we come to the very end of Job, in Job chapter 42, as he humbly comes before the Lord, admitting that he is but a speck in God's sight and that he is not worthy of any answers. Look at the words that the Lord uses to describe Job. He says uh, there in verse, this is the latter part of verse eight, he's talking to the other friends. And he says uh, in the middle of verse eight, my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. At the end of verse nine, the Lord had accepted Job. Verse 10, the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Job was in that make or break moment when he had to decide whether he was going to retreat and give it all up or if he was going to withstand and stand fast. And he made the right decision. And it almost cost him everything. He had no assurance that he was going to get anything back. He had no assurance that he was going to get his possessions back. He had no assurance that he was ever going to have a family again. But he had hope. And God rewarded that hope. And that's the lesson that I want us to take away from this. We, when we are going through these trials and tribulations, we have to withstand. We have to stand fast. The last verse I want us to look at today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we started off, we started off with 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13. In the same context, Paul talking to the church there at Corinth. And if you remember, the first couple chapters, you know, really throughout the bulk of the book, are not kind to the church at Corinth. They've got a lot they need to work on. They've got a lot they need to get better on. I think it's I think it's fair to say they are in the dip. They have they have they started off good. They plateaued and they have gone backwards. You've got individuals that are committing adultery with relatives. You've got people that are taking each other to court. You've got you've got people that are bickering with each other. They're not waiting on one another. They're misusing their spiritual gifts. I mean they are they are well into the dip. But Paul reminds them as he gets to the end of Corinthians. And our brother, Bruce Hignan, is currently going through, and I think he's almost done. I think we're right at the end of Corinthians right now. So if you want to do a greater study on Corinthians, I'd encourage you to go to the website. If you haven't already, go to the podcast and listen to some of Bruce's lessons on Corinthians. But as you get to the end, what does Paul present this struggling church with? Hope. He gives them a reason for joy. And that reason is the eternal home in heaven that we can have because of Christ's sacrifice. Look with me at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verses, let's start in in verse 54. When this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a message of hope. We can have victory. Even when we're in the dip, we can have victory. Therefore, with that victory in mind, with that hope in mind, verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. That effort that we are putting in, when we continue to put effort into spiritual things, it is not in vain. We are going to abound. We are going to get through that trial. We're going to get through that tribulation. But to do so, we have to be steadfast. We have to be immovable. We cannot retreat. We have to hold the line. And that's the message that I'd like to leave you with this morning. Uh, we're going to take uh, about a 10-minute break. So right now it's 10.25. Uh, we're going we're to come back at uh, 10.35. I believe the women are going to be in the back classroom. So at 10.35, so go get some water. Um, 10.35, the women are going to be in the back classroom. The men are going to be right here. And these next couple of sessions, I, I want to I encourage you, these are going to be participation sessions. This was, this was an introduction this was, uh, this was a lecture format, but these next classes, be prepared to talk. Be prepared to participate. Have questions. Uh, I think some of the, some of the teachers are going to have you write some things down. They're going to make you think. So, so be ready to participate uh, a little bit more. But, but I thank you for, for your kind progress, and, and just be back at uh, 1035 for the next class.